The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this episode are that of the guest and host and do not necessarily reflect the values of sponsors or other associated organizations. Welcome to the Parental Compass by Family Education and Support Services. I am your host, Bobby Williams. As always, please subscribe to the show. It means a lot to us. Interesting guest today, Tony Ventrella. Tony is a Seattle sports journalist, a staple. He's worked with the Seattle Seahawks, among many other teams. He's also one of those rare people in life who managed to achieve their dreams. As a parent though, it hasn't always been easy for him. What I tried to do in this interview was pick his brain about the parenting wisdom that he has gained along the way. I hope you like it. And you can work through it, but some people like you never want to fight around your kids and it's like, well, you know, it's good for them to see examples of conflict being resolved. That's very true. And it's it's almost not natural if you're not ever disagreeing because, you know, it's, it's human nature to do that. But you're absolutely right. That's a very good point. And unfortunately, in today's world, that's not we, we don't see there's so many people don't seem to know the ceiling of when conflict should should then lead to some result that's not someone injured. Yeah, and we don't we don't seem to be doing that as well as we could. But but yeah, I learned that my parents especially with two sisters that had died out of five of us, uh, one at the age of four months and one at the age of 10, and, and many years apart. So my mother had you know, a child, had another child, that child died as an infant, had two more children, and then a fifth one, and that child passed at the age of 10. So I saw a lot of heartache in my family. And as a result of that, my parents were, were often very tense. So they'd get in the arguments. And then, uh, but they'd settle them within the next, sometimes the next day, <laughs> but they'd always hug and, and we see that too. And I'm, I'm thinking, wow, I guess that's possible. You can yell at somebody and still really care about them. So even that was a great lesson. Yeah. Well, I remember in your speech, you were talking about there were times you didn't feel like you were always the best parent. True. That's for sure. When I became a parent, it was a different story because my uh, girlfriend and I at the time, I don't know if I explained this, I won't go into deep detail, but the <laughs> couples in those days didn't just go out on a date and, you know, and have sex together. But, but so it was many months into this six or seven month relationship. And also one night, boom, all of a sudden, next thing you know, uh, about two months, no, about a month later, we found that she was pregnant. So we got married immediately. Wow. It was never quite. My daughter was born, beautiful girl, uh, to this day, a school teacher in Vancouver, Washington, and a great one, too. And so uh, my first wife, Molly, and I, we stayed together. We were together for, I think, nine years. And at that point, I began to get into the broadcast field. I'm not blaming anything else but myself. I was, first of all, a little bit selfish. Secondly, we both got thrown into the marriage. So things deteriorated, and yet we remained uh civil with each other and divorced when we lived in indiana in fact and she said well i've got to go can i go to i'd like to move to portland and take the kids because i have family in portland 
I've got to get a job. And uh, I said, okay, go ahead. We split our, we split whatever resources we had. And I said, I'll get there as soon as I can. And that, um, frankly, I, I didn't know how, but I got a job two years later in Seattle. And I, I didn't even apply in Seattle. It just came out of the blue. So I always felt that that was uh, something that my sister, who's my guardian angel, had uh, created that job for me in Seattle. And I was able to fly and be close to my kids through their uh, growing up years, even though we were separate households. Yeah. So at that point, I became a much better dad because <laughs> I was closer. After being gone for two years, did you have this feeling of like you had to be the sort of Disneyland dad or make up for that or be extra fun or anything? I think in the beginning, yes, until I think it was my daughter and maybe my oldest son at the time, they were nine and 10. Uh, you know, I think through watching them and realizing that they're not buying it. Uh, I realized this isn't working. We, we actually did go to Disneyland once. It's funny you mentioned that. So I'm sure I know where that, where that comes from now. Um, we had a blast. We had a great time. But then I realized, wow, you know, I can't just do this. Every time I see them, we're not going to have a ball. We're going to disagree on certain things. And especially when they became teenagers, then I realized I really, I have got to stay close, not necessarily physically, because I lived in Seattle. They were in Portland. But when I did see them, I had to I had to be able to uh, discipline them in a kind way uh, when it was needed and make tough decisions. Because I'll tell you, the other thing was guilt. Bobby, I was guilt because I wasn't uh, uh, there the first couple of years for my youngest son and for a couple of years in between for the others. And um, so I thought to myself, I can't just give them everything they want to make up for what I wasn't, for what I didn't do. I've still got to be a dad. And there was one moment in particular that I remember. My daughter was 16. She got her license in Portland. And I gave her an older car that I had. And I said, now you take care of this. And I went to visit her a month later. And I got there. And there were candy wrappers in the back seat, And one door didn't close. And there was a dent in the right rear. And I said, now, if I see this car in this conditions again, I'm going to take it away from you. And... My son, Tim, who was a year later than my daughter, came to me quietly and said, Dad, Lisa doesn't believe you'll ever take the car away from her because you're just too nice all the time. So I went back down to visit a week later. The car was still dirty. I said, give me the keys. She was stunned. I drove the car away. And from that moment on, we had a much better relationship. But I, I was afraid. I was afraid that that move would, would split me from my kids forever. And instead, it helped close that gap. So it was a gutsy moment. <laughs> yeah, I think that's an important thing to bring up. Like people are worried about like offending your children or it's going to drive them away. But yeah. it's like kids do want some kind of discipline in their lives. So there had to be some borders, I think. And, and that was it. And, and I wasn't over the top on that stuff. But that one thing in particular uh, did bother me. You know, for example, they, they all go, went through stages. You know, she went through the hair stage, different colors for her hair and, and uh, <clears throat> different kind of makeup that I thought was kind of crazy. But I never, I just never commented on that. I just said, well, that's, that's an interesting style. What do they call that? Or what, <laughs> what do uh -huh. you <laughs> you probably kind of commented without commenting a little, or they probably sensed something. Are, yeah. are, there, 
What are some of the core values you tried to pass along to your children? Well, one, uh, always, and they picked it up in a hurry, and I thought it was great. One was to this, the idea of kindness, and people will see your kindness, and they will not look at it as a weakness. And once you do something that's kind to someone, it doesn't have to be a big deal, but just anything, whether it's as simple as you see a, a woman walking to her car from the grocery store, and she drops something, and rather than ignore it, you go over and help her pick it up, and are you okay? This sort of thing. And the other people see that, and it just grows, and, uh, and I, we, we would do that. And they picked up on it very quickly, and their mom was great with that sort of thing, too as were her parents. So that helped. And uh, yeah, kindness is contagious as, and sometimes, you know, meanness can be, I don't know if meanness is a word, that can be contagious too. Well, I know your books, you have what, smile in the mirror and here's smiling at you. What's that (laughs) theme of smiles in the books or what's that about? Well, I was in the, uh, when I worked with my dad, he, he taught me that early on. He, he had a barbershop in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut, and I was 15 years old. And he said to me, uh, I know you want to be a broadcaster someday, and I think that's good, but you, I want you to learn my trade first. This is the, this is the trade that I grew up with, and I, you don't have to do it, but I want you to learn it. I want you to have something to fall back on. So he taught me to cut hair when I was 15. I was cutting my classmates' hair and you know, we had to do a report on an occupation. Mine was always about barbering. And so anyway, uh, my dad uh, was in the shop at one point, two years later at 17, working in the fourth chair. And my dad would tell his other two barbers and me, when a customer comes in, I want you to smile. Uh, first thing you do is smile at them. And if you want to practice, then smile in the mirror. There are mirrors all around the room there. It's a barbershop. So <laughs> smile at yourself and See how good that makes you feel. So that's where that title came from. Uh, circling it back to parenting, how do you think what you learned as a parent translated into broadcast journalism or vice versa? Well, I think the part about connecting with everyone uh, that you meet and see. And when I was on, I never thought of television. Uh, I never thought of me sitting there uh, addressing a mass audience. Obviously, in a room with with a hundred people or a thousand people, because I've I've, I've uh, done talks in front of twenty five hundred people and twenty five people, and I've done theater in front of small groups. But television, you know, you're dealing with thousands of people, and yet to me there was one person, and that was the, that was the camera, and I could pick. I would actually picture people. I would, I would visualize a, a a man and lady sitting on a couch watching TV or two kids having dinner, watching television with their parents. And I would address them. I was looking into their eyes, not the camera's eyes, but that to me was a person. It helped also in those days, I say those days, because it's not that way anymore. You actually had a camera person in the room with you and you had a producer, a uh, floor, floor director. So if you had three cameras, you had four people there, one floor director, three camera people. And today it's all remote. So it's tougher today for, someone on television, a lot of times on the weekends, you see the man or woman in the studio doing the news, they're completely alone. There's nobody in that studio. Because hmm. the cameras are remote, the teleprompter is remote. And if something goes out, or you don't have the right video, you can't tell anybody <laughs> because there's nobody there. So it's a whole different ball game relating to that audience today 
you really have to have an imagination to do it because there is no human in the room with you. Yeah, so how did you use like stretch to relate to your children or what's an example of that? I would always listen before I talked. So if my son, for example, my son, Tim, who uh, now is, uh, shoot, he's in his late 40s. Now he's got a son of, he's got a grandson of his own. In fact, right now, a son and a grandson. But I mean, Tim would, uh, Tim was interested in track early on in junior high school in Portland. So as soon as I knew he was interested in track, I tried to relate. I was a runner anyway, and was doing marathons. So I invited him up to Seattle and he ran, uh, in those days, the old beat the bridge run in uh, Seattle, which they still do. I think Nordstrom beat the bridge run. Uh, we ran that together and my younger son, Tim, and my daughter, Lisa, would come and run with me. So all three of us were athletic and we, and they were good runners. I, I was not as fast as any of them. <laughs> uh, so I, I would always understand and try to figure out where their interests were. And then I would try to understand what those, what those interests were. And it didn't happen all the time because they were involved in some stuff that I wasn't uh, involved with. Um, for example, water sports. I was never much of a swimmer. They were all good swimmers. So I didn't relate there, but I would always uh, try to boost what they were doing and ask them about what they were doing. That's and a wonderful idea. Connect on their interest. That's the key to it. And to me, it was never about leaving some kind of legacy. It was never about, oh, I want my son to be this great baseball player so that he can carry the name. I mean, never had anything to do with that. I'm thinking, I hope he's a great baseball player for his own joy, level of joy, not for mine. I don't have, uh, so when I would go to their games, I was not the father that was yelling at the referees. <laughs> because I figured, hey, if you struck out, that's your problem. You better learn how to hit. <laughs> well, that's a big thing that comes up in sports now is parents being like incredibly involved or a little over involved a little overly emotional sometimes yeah it is and it's and what you're doing there i'm sorry but what you're doing there is you are putting yourself in uh you it's about you now it's not about the kid anymore i mean if your son or daughter is is batting and they strike out three times in a game the best thing you can do with them is tell them well you did your best you want to work on that let's go let's go throw some baseballs I'll pitch to you for an hour and let me see if we can figure out what you're doing. It's all in how you address that. Like not, let me show you where you're going wrong. You know, when I was a kid, I never did that. I didn't step out. I used to step, and it's not about what you did. It's what they're doing. Where is their interest? Where, what are they thinking? Are they, they're upset that they struck out. They're unhappy about that. The last thing you want to do is blame the umpire. It's not your fault. That bum was calling the ball. Uh -huh. <laughs> he had a big strike zone, you know? No, no, stop with the excuses. You want to get better? You got to work at it. But that that's old school stuff, though, that I just carried uh, with me for my dad because he was all about it. You take responsibility for your own actions. Yeah, you're accountable to yourself in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's nobody else's fault. And beyond, and we, we go beyond that. Even if it was somebody else's fault, we weren't allowed to blame the other person, unless it was blatant, of course. You know, you became a professional broadcast journalist, which is something few people get to achieve in their life. And there's always this feeling of, okay, I got to balance my career with being a parent. Did you have those struggles or what helped you manage all that? It was actually, it was actually uh, relatively easy since the three, the two boys especially, 
wanted to be involved because they knew I was covering events here in Seattle. They were in Portland and my daughter wanted to be involved. So I would just involve them. I would have them come to, uh, for example, a Seahawk practice or a, a Mariner uh, game. And we did uh, prior to the game, I'd go out on the field and do interviews and they, they would be able to come with me. And that was uh, all three of them enjoyed that. So, but I never took away, I never, uh, in my eyes, looked at my job as anything more important than any other job. Mm. And I told him that. I said, look, I was just as, I thought my dad was just, just as good at his job as I am at mine. The fact that he was a barber, that he was no less important than I was. I think it's, it's all how you do matter what your job is. You put your heart and soul into it. And you smile as much as you can at your customers and you'll be fine. So, but yeah, they were involved quite a bit. I mean, when, um, when my son, Pete, who's now in his forties, when he was a teenager, uh, Ken Griffey Jr. was a, just a kid. Junior was just barely a teenager. He had become a rookie here in 1989 and he didn't like doing interviews. He wasn't big on, on the media. So he would, in a teasing way, he would say to me, I don't want to talk to you, but I'll talk to your kid. And so as soon as Pete heard that one, he, I gave him the microphone and he interviewed Ken Griffey when he was 15 years old. Nice. Ken Griffey was 20. And to that, and to this day, they, they say hi to each other when they see each other. So that was, a, and they know, and I told him, I said, look, this is a privilege that a lot of kids aren't going to get. You're not going to be able to, most kids can't meet Michael Jordan in the locker room at a Sonics game, but you're going to get to do that. And whatever you do, please don't ask for an autograph. I said, uh. My son, Pete, so I get, we get the game ends and we're going to the parking lot and he holds up a picture of Michael Jordan with his autograph on. I said, what did I tell you? He goes, why couldn't you? He was nice. So I just, I had to ask him. I said, all right, please don't do that again. So anyway, the point is they, they, they really get, they got some privileges. A lot of kids weren't able to get, but they, I included them and I didn't, and it was never about me. It was always about the people we're talking about here. The interviews that we're doing, those are the people that we need to respect and be kind to. And I'm no big deal because I have this job. So, uh, and I think that came across too on the air, but I knew it certainly did with my kids because I preached that to them. Well, this has been a super interesting conversation. Do you have any closing messages or ideas you'd like to send to parents out there? Well, I think that the one thing that I had said earlier that I think is the most important is a unconditional love. But if there comes a time when a little discipline is needed, again, there's a soft way to present that to a, to a, a boy or a girl and just say, look, we love you. We want to protect you. We, you can't be, you know, jumping off the top of the roof with, uh, with your friends. It's not good for whatever they're doing. <laughs> so there, but there's that, that sense that you're doing it for them. It's all about love, and uh, it really is. And I think that the other thing is uh, raising a child. You're, you're not trying to raise that child in your image. You're trying to raise them in their own image. Let them be who they are. Keep the guidelines there so they feel safe. Most people feel safe if they're, you know, in a in an environment where you know there are rules and boundaries. And I think those couple of things work. And uh, There'll be quirks and there'll be disappointments along the way, but just keep going. No matter what, smile, keep smiling. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks so much for being here, Tony. 
thank you, Tony. We appreciate you taking the time and your support of family education and support services. This has been the Parental Compass. I'm Bobby Williams. We'll see you next week. Peace.